Let me read for you now the 13th Psalm in its entirety. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray now that you would speak comfort to us from your word as your people. That your word would cry out to us by the Spirit that our warfare is ended. That our iniquity is pardoned, that we would together behold your glory, O Lord, as it is revealed in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I still remember quite vividly the early days of my walk with Christ when I first became a Christian. And the reason that I remember those days so vividly is because I remember constantly, almost incessantly, being overwhelmed by a sense of the Lord's presence, the Lord's nearness, the Lord's grace, and just constantly feeling like the Lord was just smiling upon me. It's as if I I floated from day to day in those early days of my, my Christian life. And the other thing that I remember is not just a sense of God's nearness, but I remember specifically praying to him, Lord, as long as you remain this near to me, I can endure probably any suffering you can throw my way. It's rather naive at that point in time. I had much to learn. But I remember praying that, Lord, if you sustain me, if you feed me with your presence as I'm enjoying it right now, I really can't imagine there being anything that you could throw my way, anything by way of suffering that would cause me to turn away from you or feel distant from you. And I think the reason that I was praying that prayer the way I felt that way or had that expectation of suffering is because the Christians around me and the scriptures that I was being exposed to at that point of time, they were telling me, you need to expect to suffer with Christ and for Christ. And so I had that expectation. But you know what I wish someone had told me in the early days of my Christian life? You know, you know what's something that nobody warned me about that I wish they had? No one warned me that there would be seasons of the Christian life where I would be experiencing incredible suffering And on top of that, the Lord would feel distant. See, I had heard people talk about the dark night of the soul. 
But I didn't quite understand that what the capstone or the worst part of the dark night of the soul was that it felt like God had abandoned you or forsaken you. That you didn't feel His face shining upon you anymore. And so all of those sufferings that you thought you were once able to endure now become intolerable. You're so weak from a lack of sensing the Lord's presence that you don't know how you could possibly bear up under it. And you see, when I finally experienced that in the Christian life, that dark night of the soul, that distance from the Lord, I thought something must be wrong with me. Maybe I'm not a Christian, because surely the Lord would not abandon one of His own like this and leave me feeling distant from Him to struggle and suffer without a sense of His presence. And yet, as I went through that and I, I continued to learn from the Word and talk to other Christians, I began to realize this is on, on all sorts of... It's all over the place in Scripture. Some of God's most beloved saints have experienced this multiple times and for extended periods of time. And so I wish someone had had told me about that. And what we're going to see this morning is that that's the kind of experience that David is having. He's suffering and the Lord feels distant in all of it. He doesn't sense his nearness like he once used to. And so I pray that the Lord uses this sermon, whether you're in the midst of a dark night of the soul, or whether you've been in one before and you're reflecting back on it, or whether you're a young Christian and you have no idea what I'm talking about yet. I I believe that this psalm has something to say for each one of us. Because what we're going to see is an answer to an important question. When we're in a situation like this, a season in our walk with the Lord like this, how do we persevere and endure through it? Because that's what we see happen with David. We see the Lord sustain him through it. And what we're going to see is three movements in this psalm. First, we're going to see David's despair in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to look at David's prayer in verses 3 and 4. And then lastly... We'll look at David's praise in verses 5 and 6. And so what we're going to see is how David transitions from despair to prayer to praise. And my hope is that we will be armed with the same truths about who God is, about who we are, and about how we too can move from despair to prayer to praise. So let's look first then at David's despair. First, we have the superscript for this psalm. This is in the original text. It's included in the original Hebrew. To the choir master, a psalm of David. So we know who David wrote it to, and we know that David is the one who wrote it. And as if, like a movie or an episode from a television show that starts out with a blood-curdling shriek. Have you ever seen a movie or a television show like that? The episode starts out, someone screaming at the top of their lungs... That is how this psalm opens. The volume is turned up to 10. And David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is a cry of desperation. This is a cry of despair. And David's crying out to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord, you see that in all caps there, L-O-R-D, that's telling you that in the Hebrew, that's the Lord's name, Yahweh. That's the name that the Lord revealed to his people back in Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord says, Moses, I want you to bring them out of captivity. I'm going to use you to redeem them and save them. And Moses says, who shall I say sent them? And the Lord says, say I am that I am. 
Yahweh has sent you. And so David is appealing to his covenant Lord here. David is one of God's covenant people. He's God's covenant king through whom the messianic line would continue. And so here is David before the face of his covenant God saying, How long am I going to have to suffer like this? How long are you going to forget me? And you'll notice that there's how long, how long, how long, how long, four times in those first two verses. And what it's highlighting for us is that David's suffering is not just intense, but it's also been prolonged. And he feels like he's at the end of his rope, saying, Lord, I don't know how much longer I can hang on. And so you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to pay attention to me. And so what does he say? He says, it feels like you have forgotten me forever. I read a Hebrew scholar this past week who said that he thinks that word there forever is perhaps better translated utterly. Have you utterly forgotten me? You, you know the pain of being forgotten by somebody, right? You ever been forgotten by someone? Out of sight, out of mind. Well, I thought, I thought we had a really important relationship here and it's, it's like you've forgotten me. Well, you know that pain. How much more would you feel that pain and that suffering if it was the God who saved you? You feel like he has just completely forgotten about you. He goes on to say, though, the pain is even worse than just being forgotten. Second half of verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, this ups the ante. Because it's not just that you've forgotten me. It's that you're actually hiding yourself from me. That's worse than being forgotten, right? You're aware that I'm there. You can see me. But it's like you've, you've covered your face with your hands. You've turned away from me. And so I, I don't feel your countenance being lifted upon me. Now, why is this such a problem for David? Why can't we just tell David, hey, get over it. Push on. The reason that David is suffering as he is feeling forgotten, and that the Lord has hidden his face from him, is because this is a promise of the old covenant. One of the promises that the Lord gave to his people, gave to David, was Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 25. This is a passage of scripture that you've heard us recite many times as a benediction when we close the service. And here's what Numbers 6, 24 through 25 says. The Lord bless you and keep you, The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This was the covenant promise that was given to the people of Israel in the Old Covenant as God's chosen people. That His face would shine upon them. That He would bless them and keep them, be gracious to them and give them peace. And here's David saying, how much longer am I going to have to be denied this covenant promise? How much longer am I going to be forgotten by you, forsaken by you? How much longer are you going to hide your favor and your face from me? So this is a serious issue, isn't it? It seems as though in David's experience that the Lord is not keeping his covenant promise to David. His experience is much like that of the people of Israel during the time of the prophet Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16, let me read it to you. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, this is what Israel says to the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, has forsaken me. 
The Lord has forgotten me. Sounds just like Psalm 13, doesn't it? Rather than number six, the Lord's face shining upon them, instead, he's forsaken me and forgotten me. But now listen to the Lord's response. What's the Lord's response to his covenant people? Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? What is the Lord telling Israel? He's saying, Israel, I know you've seen a nursing mother with her child. That child that she carried around for nine months and went through the pain and agony of delivering back then. It very well, most of the time, could have cost you your life. And now you've been equipped to be able to feed this child, to comfort this child. And so when you hear it crying, you're going to respond to your child. You love your child. You can't turn away and forget and forsake them. No, you have compassion on them. In God's common grace, that's the reality between a mother and her child. Only in the most dire and messed up of situations does a mother forget or forsake her child in that situation. And the Lord acknowledges that. He said, even these may forget. Even mothers may forget their nursing children. Yet I will not forget you. It's unnatural that a nursing mother should forget her child. And it happens sometimes. But Israel, you have to know. I will never forget you. Why? Because I'm not a man I'm not a woman, I'm not a human being that I might change in my character. My character doesn't change. So I'm not going to turn away from you or forget you or forsake you. And what does he say at the beginning of verse 16 in Isaiah 49? Because I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. You're a part of me now. I've united your good and my glory so instricably together that to forget about you would be to forget about my own glory, and that's impossible. And so the, the people of God needed to be reminded of this truth. But David, even if he knew this truth, wasn't experiencing that. And he was struggling. And there's no greater suffering for the Christian than thinking that God has forgotten about him or forsaken him or her. As if that weren't enough, that would be enough suffering David experiences even more. Look at the first half of verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? What is David talking about here? What David is saying is, my suffering is so intense, we're going to go on to see that he has external enemies that are attacking him as well, and it looks like they're prevailing over him. He's saying, my suffering is so intense that I'm constantly thinking of ways, how can I get out of this? How can I come up with a plan? How can I manipulate the situation? How can I somehow get the Lord to turn his face towards me again? And yet what David says of that experience is, is that as he's doing that, he realizes as he's thinking about it, this is futile. This is vain. I can't bring about any change in my life. And yet, even when he gets there, he goes back to thinking again, almost obsessively, about how to get out of this situation because the suffering and the pain are pushing him to that. I can't endure this anymore, so now I've got to go back internally and come up with a plan because the Lord doesn't seem to be paying attention. The Lord's not delivering me, so I need to deliver myself by my own hand. You've ever been through this dark night of the soul? You know exactly what David's talk, 
talking about. It's not how we're supposed to respond when the Lord feels distant, but it is how we respond oftentimes in our sinful flesh, isn't it? We turn inward on ourselves. We collapse in on ourselves. And our world becomes very small. And so instead of obeying the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving others, we we almost don't even notice that other people are around. Even the secular world knows this. The secular world will tell you, when you're suffering like this, just try to focus on somebody else a bit. Get outside of yourself. It's actually good advice. But they've, they've really stolen it from our gracious creator who's written it on our hearts. But the reality is we turn inward and oftentimes when we despair and realize that there's no way we can save ourselves, what we then do is we try to distract ourselves, don't we? Let me just numb myself with food or entertainment. I can't fix it, so I'm just going to check out and try to, try to exist as if that's not even happening. Now, we're not told that that's what David does here, that second part, but we often do that, don't we? Probably not much of a, get, of, a, of a leap to think that he probably gave in to that. Or maybe that's part of his cry here. I'm about to do that because I can't hold on much longer, Lord. I'm just going to have to check out. And so the suffering is not just that the Lord feels distant, but that he feels trapped in his own head. That his world is, is so very small. But that's not all. There's a third suffering that he's experiencing. And that is at the second half of verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So he's got these external enemies. Part of the brilliance of the Psalms is that we're not often given the specifics. And I say that's brilliant because then the Psalm is more readily owned by us. We don't look at it and go, well, that's not exactly my circumstance. So I don't know that that Psalm really applies. Well, we're not given the circumstances here. And so it's so easy for us to own this. But the reality is that David has these external enemies. Now, we're not told whether they're visible or invisible enemies. That is, whether it's someone like Saul or Absalom or a warring nation. Or it's an invisible enemy, the flesh, the world, the devil. But either way, David says they're real and they're prevailing over me. Now, why is this a problem? This is a problem because who is David? David is Israel's king. The king that God gave to Israel to, to, to um, continue the messianic line. That there would be an heir that would sit on the throne forever. And so David is saying, listen, if my enemies prevail over me, Lord, what's going to happen to your kingdom? Because you've united yourself to, to the, the nation of Israel. Their good is your good. Their glory is your glory. And so if they triumph over me, what's going to happen to your glory, O oh Lord? David's enemies are God's enemies. And he says, how long am I going to have to continue experiencing their gloating, their success, their prevailing over me? Right? When the Lord feels distant, when you feel trapped in your own head, you're suffering, and then your enemies are prevailing and flaunt. It's just like salt in the wound. That's why David says, how long, how long, how long am I going to have to endure this and hang on? Because I I don't think I'm going to be able to endure much longer. It's this cry of desperation. Brothers and sisters, Christians, take note. The first thing for us to learn from this is that this is something that we will all experience if we haven't already. 
in our walk with the Lord. We're going to feel like the Lord has abandoned us as His children. So expect that. That doesn't make it necessarily hurt any less. But I want to remove that shock of, has the Lord... Am I, I, have I never really a Christian? Did I never really believe in the first place? That just adds and compounds the issues that you'll be struggling with in a dark night of the soul like this. But the other thing I want you to realize is that just because you experience this and feel like the Lord has hidden His face and forgotten and forsaken you, that doesn't mean that He has. Remember and, and meditate on Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. And, and let me appeal to a better pastor and preacher than myself. John Calvin wrote in his commentary on Psalm 13 this very helpful truth. A hidden face is no sign of a forgetful heart. The Lord may hide His face from you. In fact, He does do that to His children. But it does not mean that He has forgotten you or forsaken you. Calvin goes on to say, it is in love that his face is turned away. I know it feels like he's communicating hatred, but really he's saying, I love you. And Calvin goes on to say, yet to a real child of God, to a real child of God, this hiding of his father's face is terrible. And he will never be at ease until once more he has his father's smile. Do you see the pastoral brilliance here? On the one hand, expect this. It will happen, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Don't believe the lie that the enemy wants you to believe that God has forsaken you and given up on you. Yes, he's hidden his face, but he has not abandoned you. He will not abandon you or his covenant promises to you. But here's the question that we're then left with, right? Why would God do this to his children? Why would he hide his face from them? Now, I don't want to venture a specific guess in your specific situation if you're going through this right now. But here's what I can tell you. There's a couple possibilities. The Lord, first of all, is doing it for your good and to conform you to the image of Christ. Christ himself learned obedience through what? Through what he suffered. And what's the great good that God gives us? It's to remake us into the image of Christ himself that we might graciously grow more and more to reflect His character. So what does that typically look like? Well, the Lord may be hiding His face from you to expose sin in your life that you don't know is there. Don't you, don't, doesn't the sin rise up within you when you feel the Lord pulling away and hiding His face? It's as if all those sins that were restrained now come bubbling to the surface. And so it's an opportunity to repent of sin as it comes up. And as it's brought to the surface. But the flip side of that is not just repentance, but also faith, right? Growing further in character. Okay, I lack that. I'm not walking in accord with God's law in that way. So now I want to grow and I want to change like Christ as I cling to God's promises. And ultimately, what does the Lord show us through that? As we endure, as we persevere, He shows us your faith is genuine. You may feel like you're just hanging on by a thread, hanging on by the very tip of your finger, and yet you're still hanging on because I'm sustaining your faith. By my all-powerful, mighty, mysterious ways, I'm holding on to you, and I'm not going to let go, even though you feel like you're going to slip and fall completely and be lost in the abyss. I will never let go of you. 
And so he shows us the genuineness of our faith. Now, does that, do all those truths make it easy to walk through the dark night of the soul? No, it doesn't. But we need to understand that's what he's doing. And understand that it doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. It doesn't mean that we enjoy the despair. We hate it. We want the Father's face to shine upon us again. But as we wait, we have to remind ourselves of these truths as we are in the pit of despair. So we've looked at David's despair. Now let's look next at at David's prayer. Let's see how David moves from despair to prayer in verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, I just want to say right off the bat, the fact that, that David turns to the Lord in prayer and, and says these things doesn't show his lack of faith. Rather, it shows the extent of his faith, the quality of his faith. Here he is, he feels like everything has been lost. And yet, rather than remaining turned in on himself, as he was doing earlier, he now turns outward towards the Lord. He turns outward towards him. That's faith. Sometimes all you feel like you're not moving towards the direction of the Lord, but you're at least looking at Him. And that's that's enough. You're you're hanging on. The Lord is sustaining your faith. But what does David say? Well, first of all, he makes three petitions, and we'll look at those. But the first thing I want you to note in verse 3 is that he says, O Lord, my God. So what is he saying here? He's reminding himself of a truth already. You're not just Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. You are my God. Personally. You're not just the God of Israel. And I'm not just a part of Israel, but you're my God. You're David's God. You're my Father. And so I cry out to you. Right? That's the instinct of a child. When they have a need that needs to be met, what do they do? They cry out to their parents. I have a little 10-month-old son, and he can't speak yet. But he cries. Why does he cry? He cries because he's communicating as best as he can to me. Dad, I need my diaper changed. Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, you kept me up too long and now I'm really well past the point of wanting to go take a nap or go to sleep. Dad, I don't like the fact that you took that toy away from me. Give me back what I want. He's communicating. There's this impulse in children when they know their parents love them to cry out and say, look at me, help me. And that's what David's doing. At the beginning of verse uh, 3, the first petition he makes here is, Look, consider. I read a Hebrew scholar that said that could easily be translated look. And look makes a lot of sense, right? Because how does David feel the Lord's treating him right now? He's hiding his face. He's turned away from David. And so David's saying, Look at me. Help me. Save me. I'm drowning. I'm barely hanging on. I don't know how much longer I can. Look at me. Please, you see the desperation even in his prayer, the earnestness and the fervency here. And he says, I need you to not just look at me and pay attention because it seems like you've forgotten me, but I need you to answer me, answer my prayers. I don't understand what you're doing here, Lord. Hear my requests, hear my prayers, hear my petitions, O Lord, my God, and be faithful to your covenant, to me. And to your people. And then the third petition, which is probably the most important 
at the, the second half of verse 3. He says, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now, what does David mean here? I think there's, there's, there's two layers to what David is saying here. The first layer, the most obvious is, David's feeling so run down physically, so worn out by this suffering, being trapped in his head, the Lord being distant, his enemies prevailing over him, that he says, you know what? Literally, my vision is messing with me. My eyes are getting dark. I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. Pretty sure my enemies are going to get the upper hand, and, and I'm going to be overtaken by them, that I'm going to die. That's the first layer. But I think the second and more important layer is that David is saying, Lord, I have no perspective in all of this. I can't possibly make sense of why you're doing what you're doing. I know your covenant promises, so why are you hiding your face? I know your covenant promises. You're going to establish your kingdom and crush your enemies. So then why are my enemies, which are your enemies, prevailing over me? I have no perspective on how this can possibly be advancing your kingdom, furthering the good news of what you are doing. I have no category for this, Lord. And I can't even think right about it because I'm trapped in my own head, obsessively thinking about how in the world I can get out of this. So what David is saying is my faith is weak. How how am I supposed to? I'm not telling you to to, to explain to me why you're doing this. I know that's too much for me. But at least give me the eyes of faith to trust that your promises are true even when my experience is the exact opposite. And I feel the opposite. This is the essence of walking by faith and not by sight. Who gives us that faith? God does. Who sustains that faith? God does. And so when that faith is weak, who do we go to to say strengthen it? We go to the Lord. And that's what David's doing here. And do you see what he's doing? He's just pleading the covenant promises. Don't forget your promises. That's what prayer is. You understand that when we pray to the Lord, in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, to our Heavenly Father, you understand all we're doing is taking the promises that God has given us in His Word and we're saying them back to Him. Lord, remember Your promises. Lord, fulfill Your promises. Lord, You've said this in Your Word. Please do this. And He uses those prayers as the means to bring His will about. To bring those promises about. Do we understand that that's what's happening in prayer? And that only the Lord is the one who can sustain our faith. David does. And that's why he's turning to the Lord in prayer. He's turning to the Lord because he knows you're the only one who can sustain me through this suffering when you feel so distant. And so the reality is that if we believe those things, then we'll stop looking inward even as David did. Stop collapsing in on ourselves. And we will turn outward to the Lord. That's the impulse of the Christian heart. I'm not saying how long that'll take. It's a different time length, uh, length of time for every individual Christian, depending on the season that they're going through. But as Martin Luther, I believe it's Martin Luther said, yes, at times hope despairs. But then for the Christian, despair hopes. Because the promises of God's word. And so that's what we will find ourselves doing. Because do you see that the linchpin of this entire psalm is prayer? It's verses 3 and 4. What gets David from despair to praise? It's that passageway of prayer where he turns to the Lord and cries out to him. I don't know about you, but this would be a prayer that if it was in my prayer journal, I wouldn't want it to be public knowledge. God, look at how weak I was at that point in time. 
And yet, do you understand what the Lord has done here? He's inspired his king, David, to feel this way, to experience this, and then to write it down, and it's saved in sacred scripture for us to know this is the kind of access we have to our God. To cry out and say, how long? Look at me, Father. I'm desperate without you. I need you to sustain me. And that is the heart of a true child of God. They will will turn to the Lord. And you see, this is another reason why the Lord allows us to taste this despair. To experience this distance. Because in that despair, we turn towards the Lord in prayer. Our hearts are, are driven towards Him. And brothers and sisters, while in and of itself, the circumstances, the suffering may not be good, if it brings about that result, it is good for us. And who knows better what's good for us than our Heavenly Father, who sovereignly brings this into our lives. One more thing I want to quickly say for us at a corporate level. Please be patient with one another as you walk alongside of each other through this experience. Because what's the temptation? When someone's in despair, I'll tell you this as a pastor, I want to get them out of that despair as quickly as possible. Now, there's mixed motives for that, right? On the one hand, I don't want to see them suffer like that. But on the other hand, I don't want to have to enter into their suffering and walk alongside of them like that at times. Right? Can I be honest? And so here's the thing. We've got to fight off that temptation and be patient and walk alongside of folks. Why, don't, why, why can't we just weep with them as they're weeping in their despair? Because what happens when you push them too soon? I I know this isn't very important to you and you just want to get past it. You're communicating indifference. And the Lord doesn't communicate indifference to his people as they're going through these things. So how dare we communicate indifference? Let's weep with them when they weep and rejoice with them when they rejoice. And be patient as they turn from despair to prayer to praise. Because we want to see them, and may we be praying for them that that would happen as they're in the pit of despair. All right, so we've looked at the despair. We've seen how the turning point is prayer. And now let's look at how this whole thing crescendos. Or really, it's kind of interesting. It starts with the, the volume really loud, and it progressively gets quieter and quieter. It's like you throw a rock in a, in a pond, and the, the big waves or pebbles are towards where the rock was. And the further out you get, the more peace and still there is. That's the way this psalm is. And so now let's look at, at David's praise in verse 5 and 6. David says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, what in the world is just... This is very different than the beginning. This is very different than the first four verses. So David's circumstances probably changed, right? The Lord probably said, Hey, peekaboo, here I am again. Here's the light of my countenance. My face is shining upon you. And his enemies got got overthrown, right? That's what happened in order for him to get to this point. No, as far as we know, his circumstances have not changed. Not one bit. You know what's changed? David's perspective has changed. I think what's happened, and I think the text makes this pretty clear, is that the Lord has answered David's prayer and now lit his eyes up. He's increased his faith to be able to behold the promises of God, and not just the promises of God, but the character of God. 
That's what I believe the Lord has opened David's eyes now to see, is who God is as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures throughout salvation history. And there's three characteristics, three character traits of God that He reveals to David here. This is the only reason he's able to sing at the end of it all. It's because he sees the character of God, not because his circumstances have changed. First of all, he sees the steadfast love of the Lord. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. It's this Hebrew word, chesed, which is God's unchanging, everlasting, covenant love that he places on his people. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the Lord saying, you don't ever have to worry about me not loving you anymore because my loving you never had a beginning and it will never have an end. And so you can trust in my covenant faithfulness to you. My love is steadfast. I will fulfill the promises of the covenant that I've made to you, David. And so it's, it's not because of, of how great or incredible you are because of how great and incredible I am. You can sing, David, not because your circumstances have changed, but because you know the one who is sovereign over all your circumstances. And my love for you is steadfast. Second thing that David begins to realize or see very clearly is that God is gracious. He's a God who saves. Look at the second half of verse 5. My heart shall rejoice... In your salvation. David only has to look back on the the, the salvation history of Israel and know that though the Lord's people again and again turn away from him and get themselves into dire straits, the Lord saves them and redeems them out of that again and again and again. So what does that say about God's character? It says that God is gracious. He's loving and gracious. He didn't choose Israel. He explicitly says this. I didn't choose you because you're the biggest nation. I didn't choose you because you're the smartest nation. I didn't choose you because you got the best military. I didn't choose you because you're the most moral. No, quite the opposite. Chose you for all the opposite of those reasons so that my love would be put on display. It shows my character, not yours. And so David's saying, I will meditate on your love, O Lord. I see that you are gracious. I remember how you've been gracious to your people. And the last thing he says in verse 6 is, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What's he saying about God's character here? God, I know you're good. And you're not just sort of good in a stingy way. Well, I want people to know that I'm good, so I'm just going to exhibit it in a little bit. So they can't say I'm bad. Here's a little bit of good so that people will know. No, no, no. He's overflowing with goodness. All things that exist, exist because of His goodness. All things continue to exist because of His goodness. We have the variety of experiences and foods and, uh, and friendships. And every single person that's ever existed has these little differences and nuances. All of those things are a sign of God's abundance and generosity and goodness. And so David says, I know you've been good. I know you are good. And I know you've been generous towards your people. And so I'm going to trust your character. Even when it seems like you won't even let your face shine upon me. That's my experience. I know you love your children. I know you're generous and loving and gracious towards us. And so because of that, I'm able to sing. And isn't that why we come here every Sunday morning? We don't come here because we feel 
man, I never feel better and church is exactly where I want to be and I want to spend a bunch of time with a a bunch of other sinners in a building and hear a man open up the the Bible and expound it. Why are we here? We're here because we trust God's character. And so we come and we sing. And we rejoice no matter what's going on in our lives in who He is and how He has shown us grace in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we come. And so the question is, do we cling to the Lord's character through these dark times? Do we remember, even though I can't see it, even though I don't experience it, I know this is true of you because you never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You've dealt bountifully with me. You will save me. You have saved me. You'll save me again. And you're faithful to your promises. Do we do that? And here's the reality. We oftentimes don't, do we? And so you know what part of the good news of all of this is? David was looking forward to the coming Messiah who would live this psalm, sing this psalm. We look back on that Messiah who came. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus who took on flesh, entered into our sufferings. And and how is his life characterized? What does Psalm 53 tell us? Jesus was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief throughout his entire life. And where was that accentuated? Where was that heightened? At Gethsemane and on the cross. That's where he experienced the darkest night of the soul that any human ever has. Think about it. What does he tell his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, as he's in the garden contemplating, praying, being ministered to by angels, sweating drops of blood? He says to them in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. But the time is drawing near. And just the weight of knowing that he is going to have to pay for all the sins of God's people who have ever lived or ever will live. And he's going to be murdered at the hands of of horrific men dying on a cross, slowly suffocating as he pushes himself up for each agonizing breath. Is there any darker night of the soul than that? And it's not just that. It's that God is going to turn his back on him. He's going to forsake him. Why? Because of your sin and my sin. So that we can know that the Lord will never turn his back on us. He abandoned Jesus. So we will never be abandoned. Jesus drank the fullness of the cup of the Father's wrath for sins so that there's nothing left for us. There's nothing but a cup of peace and blessing and grace. That's what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 23. My cup overflows with blessing. Not with curses. Not with punishment. Because that was met on Jesus. We know that because what does Jesus cry out on the cross? His final breath on Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus has experienced, that's from Psalm 22. But Jesus' experience on the cross and in Gethsemane is encapsulated in Psalm 13. And you know Jesus sang that psalm as he was growing up in the synagogue. I don't doubt for a second that he was meditating on it as he died, paying the penalty for your sins and mine so that we might never have to fear the Father forsaking us. And so here's the reality. Beyond that, as if that's not enough encouragement, who do you always have walking alongside of you, with you, through this dark night of the soul? Someone who's been there 
in a way that no one else will ever understand. We have a sympathetic high priest who says, child, brother, sister, I've been there. I will walk alongside of you. I know what this is like. And you feel alone, and you feel like nobody else understands. And no one fully does understand, except one person, the Lord Jesus, who came and suffered and was forsaken by the Father on the cross for our sins. No one went through a darker night of the soul than Jesus, and he will walk with us through ours, because he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so because that's true, even when it feels like the Lord's smile has left us forever, we can confidently sing much as David did, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let me pray.